desire to move for a time from the book of Deuteronomy to the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to finish, though, this second really, really long sermon in the middle of Deuteronomy where Moses takes the Ten Commandments and he uses the Ten Commandments by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and develops it into a series of case laws for the the nation of Israel. Now, what we are called to do now in the church is to understand that in some fashion, since the nation of Israel is no longer a nation as they were in the Old Testament, now God has expanded his kingdom to include even the Gentile nations. There are certain aspects of the judicial law that have passed away with the nation-state of Israel. In our own confession, we read this very important clause, except for the general equity of these things. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, we're going to see a very easy general equity application. And then I hope to, in some fashion, move through that with this question, as we have should had in our minds throughout the length of this middle sermon in particular, what is the general equity of these case laws? How do these form, even today, rules for our own living? I'll begin reading in verse 4 of chapter 25. This is the beginning, although there will be another chapter or another section next week on the 10th commandment tonight, just verses 4 through 19. Here as I read from God's word, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name, that is the dead brother, may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and shall pull off his sandal of his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. That'd be an interesting welcome, Matt, wouldn't it? When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small, a full and fair weight. You shall have a full and fair measure you shall have that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what Amalek did to you 
on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven and you shall not forget. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we ask that you might grant to us the wisdom to read your word of things of ancient times and not see it as strange, impossible to apply, but rather be humble before your word and learn from it, we ask in your name. Amen. Again, there is no better short summary of the commandments of God than what we find in the shorter and larger catechism. Question 80 and 81 of the shorter catechism regarding the 10th commandment say these things. Question 80, what is required in the 10th commandment? That means what are you supposed to do? The 10th commandment requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. And then question 81, what is forbidden in the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor, and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. What we should do, what we should not do. What is required, what is forbidden. Now, the gift of God's law at Sinai is a game changer. There is no other law like it in human history for two reasons. Number one, it comes from God's own mouth. It was written by God's own hand, those Ten Commandments there at Sinai. And then by the Spirit, God inspired Moses through the rest of the Pentateuch to express application, application of the law of God. Some of those laws fall into the ceremonial, and those have been fulfilled by Christ and are no longer required. We do not offer sacrifices at Reformation OPC. And thanks be to God that the blood of rams and goats is done away with, and Christ's sufficient sacrifice is enough. Book of Hebrews. This is why the book of Hebrews is so essential once for all of his people. There are the, judi the judicial laws, and those are the laws that particularly apply to the nation-state of Israel. Some of those have been abrogated, but the sort of general Equity, that is, the general principles, the common or case law nature of them, can be applied today. And then, of course, the moral law, the moral law, the summary of it, that is the Ten Commandments. That will never pass away. Never. In fact, Christ takes the moral law given at Sinai and he reapplies it in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, what is their use? Well, that is where Westminster Confession, chapter 19, verse 4, further than the general equity thereof may require. Now, I know this is a lot of King Jamesy language. And I know many of us say, just, you know, why can't I just love Jesus, love people, because there's so much more to it than sentiment. 
Parents, have you ever had a situation in the life of your home where your children come to you with a dilemma? It is a moral dilemma. It is a parental managerial dilemma. Something has happened, and they come to you and say, you need to make a decision, and you go, just go away. I don't know what to do. You're just bothering me. Go away. It's one of those stumpers. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who had the ball first? Who gets it? Now, oftentimes, what do you do? Just give me the ball. Nobody can have it. Is there a better way? Is there a way in which we can, with greater equity, greater charity, not just parent, but also, if we were to establish a society, if we were to build a nation, guess what the first thing you have to do is? Establish a law that all men must obey. What kind of law will that be? Now, we live with the advantage of having wiser people having written things that we are sort of built our lives around. I'm talking of things about things like the Magna Carta, the Constitution, or Constitutions, the Bill of Rights. All of these gifts that have been given to men, they always appeal to what? That there is a maker who sits in heaven and he watches over the affairs of men and it is to him we must give an account. If we are called to give an account to God, how should we fashion our lives as it relates to the 10th commandment? Well, these three things, or three points that I want to make tonight. The first, a law for provision. A law for provision. Secondly, providing an inheritance providing an inheritance, and then thirdly, weights and measures. Weights and measures. Let's look at the first point, a law for provision. Kids, their laws in the Bibles, Bible, did I say Bibles? Bible, this Sunday evening, (laughs) about animals and how they should be treated. And did you know that Paul in the New Testament, he takes a law about an ox and he applies it to a pastor. That's strange, isn't it? In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 talks about how ministers, when they're laboring in the field, should receive income from the field in which they labor. And this is the law that he appeals to. This is textbook general equity practice. And here it is. Verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now you may say, how in the world does that apply to the Tenth Commandment? Well, what does the Tenth Commandment ask us to do? Well, the Shorter Catechism is right when it says it requires a full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. And if we are not just to take care of animals when they work, how much more one another? Now, how do we apply this to people without calling them cows, right? How do we do this? The ox is an employee, is a workman or worker for the one who owns it. And the one who owns it knows that if this ox is to be useful, is to continue laboring, that ox needs to be unmuzzled. You know what a muzzle is? I've considered buying them even for my own children. You know what they are? Something you strap around the head of an animal to keep it from biting or talking. I guess they could hum. (laughs) And they put that on the animal, again, to not eat or to not bite. 
If you muzzle an ox as it is treading in this circle, the grain, it cannot eat. But what the Lord says is this, unmuzzle it, let it eat. Let it also reap from the harvest that I have given to you. Let it enjoy the fruit of your, its own labors. And so, what is the principle? What is the general equity principle? It is this, pay your workers. Why are there unpaid internships in the church? I don't know. You know why? Oftentimes churches don't have a lot of money. Or maybe they say they get paid with the experience of being an intern. And do you know what experience does when it comes to paying for food? Nothing. You don't go to McDonald's and go through the drive-thru and say, well, actually, I got a lot of experience in my summer internship. Can I use that to pay? They're going to say no. A workman is worth his wages. This, again, is a biblical principle. Why does an employer steal? What is the heart? Because that is what we are getting to in the Tenth Commandment. In fact, the Eighth Commandment is, do not steal. The Ninth Commandment is, do not bear false witness. The Tenth Commandment is, do not covet. And all three of those commandments have in common a similar theme. You are seeking to take from another by action, by your mouth, or by the heart lust you possess something that does not belong to you. What is the great sin of Israel in the Old Testament? What is the great sin of Eve in the garden? She coveted the promises of the serpent. She sought to lay hold for herself that which was delightful. It happened here first in her heart, and then she acted on it. And we need to head those things off at the pass, and we'll get to there at the end. But one of the ways in which we see the Tenth Commandment working out in our midst is that we are not to take from another in order to build up our own wealth. If they've worked for it, it's theirs Give it to them and do it quickly. Kids, I know some of you will get paid every other week in your hourly jobs. I'm not saying go to your employer and say, listen, the Tenth Commandment is pretty clear. I think you should pay me at the very least every Friday. But you know, you probably could make a good argument for that. We see theft all around us. Where does that action begin? When you see what someone else has or the way in which they're going after it and you head them off and you take it from them. And so this law for provision is very important. And I would argue that the greatest exercise of this, the greatest violation of this kind of principle is David and Bathsheba. It's brutal. David has everything. He is the king of Israel. There is nothing that he could not go out and legally, not God's law, but sort of common law in many of the hearts of many Israelites, go and take it for himself. He looked at Bathsheba, he lusted after her, and he took her. <coughs> and then in order to cover up his sin, he had her husband put on the front line of battle. 
or he was subsequently killed. Now, God would not leave David unconfronted. And so in the book of 2 Samuel, God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And I want us to look at this passage because I think it's very telling. I think it's a very important passage for us to look at. 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, and I'll read to verse 9. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. This should make you angry. And it made David angry. David thought, not in my kingdom. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now this actually isn't according to the law of God. This is an overreaction. But David is angry. And God knows it. And that's why he sent him, Nathan. And Nathan told what really is a parable of sorts. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little... I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Boom. Twisted. This is what is to be forgiven. To take by force by even maybe legal but unrighteous means, that which does not belong to you and that God has not given. And look at what God says to David through Nathan. Have I not given you enough? We all remember the girl in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory who never had enough. Is it Veruca Salt? Is she the greedy one? that just whined and whined and wanted a pony and all of these things. And you looked at her on the screen and when that thing happened to her, you were like, good riddance. Now what we should have done, we should have seen this, he should have turned to the camera, broken the fourth wall and said, you are Veruca Salt. But that's the whole principle, isn't it? No one is worthy to take up the mantle of the empire. It's interesting. But you must provide, and you must not take that which belongs rightly to another. All right, second point, providing an inheritance. This is where it gets interesting. 
There's two men. They're living in a house together. They're brothers. One of the men dies. Then it is right. It is encouraged for the man, the brother, who's... Uh, whose brother has died, to marry the widow. This is what is to be done. That man who is still living, the brother of the deceased man, is to marry the widow and to provide, as much as he is able, an offspring. Now there's a reason for this. So that the name of the brother who has died and the family that the widow belongs to may flourish in order to produce an heir. Now, if that brother, the brother who is living, refuses to do this, he must go to the elders of the city and express his lack of desire to embrace this idea that is called Leverite marriage. Leverite has nothing to do with the Levites. Levir means brother-in-law or brother. It doesn't have anything to do with the Levites, which is what I thought for years. How does this, what? What does this have to do with the priests? It's not what it is. But look at the what's the um, the reason for this verse six. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that the name of the dead brother may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, can you imagine why that brother would not want to do that? Because now he is obligated to have a son, as much as he is able, that is not his son by birthright. The son that would be born to him is credited to his dead brother. What he is called to do is to give up, in some sense, his own rights that he may marry. Now, whatever children are born next would be his by offspring and right. But you can imagine why a man would say, no, I don't want to do that. Out of the sentiment of an evil, wicked heart, he would say, I want my own son, I want my own family, I want my own lineage. Now, what's interesting is the fallout of this. If he refuses, it brings great shame upon himself. And this is what happens. The wife, who is the accuser, has the opportunity to go before the elders to take off the sandal of his foot. Now, this is symbolic. Because the foot represented in some sense a man's strength, his ability to have children, his ability to procreate. I think I made it clear. This is what it symbolized. She was to take off the sandal and spit in his face as an act of shaming him. And then he and his family for generations would be known as the family that refused to give to that woman the ability to have a family. It brought great shame. Now, I've never conducted one of these ceremonies in our church. Kelvin and I have never sat here out by the, the wall of the church and had a man and a, a woman come and a sandal slapping and a spitting in the face. But James says what? True religion is to care for widows and orphans. It is no church if it is a church that abandons those in need. And in fact, an entire office was established in the church of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 6, the office of the diaconate, in order to do what? To take care of widows. This is an issue of providing care 
Women thousands of years ago did not have as many opportunities, even as they do now. And so it was necessary that they be part of a family in order to be properly cared for. This is God's way of caring for the home by using the people of God to care for one another. Listen, God uses means. If a begging widow comes to our church and says, I have nothing to eat, we're not going to say, well, you just need to go home and pray really hard and maybe God will drop something out of the sky. When she comes, what is happening? God has sent her to us in his providence that we might be of some value and use to her to care for her. The most broken and the most hurting. Now, what has often happened now is that responsibility that has been given to the people of God has been taken and mishandled by another sphere of authority, the state. And here's the problem. They don't actually care for those people. Or they care in this way. Here, here's a handout. Can I have your vote when it comes to election time? This is freely offered. This does not benefit the brother in any way at the beginning, does it? He's not marrying for love. <laughs> He's marrying out of compulsion, as it were, in regards to God's law. It will cost the church something to care for those who have lost. But we are to labor, according to the Tenth Commandment, to benefit and bless the homes, houses, lives of others. Now, let's look at this next one. This is like something out of an episode of Cops that you might see one Friday late at night. When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. You shall... Your eyes shall have no pity. Even Moses is being delicate. What he means by this, if there are two men fighting and the woman is trying to finish the fight by essentially removing the part itself, by a needless attack that would result in the destruction of a man's private parts, you have to cut her hand off. Now why is that? And why in the world is that here? Because it's related to the previous one. In the previous one, it is the responsibility of the brother to use the gift that God has given him as a man to have a child with that woman. What if you take that ability away? What if you take away the ability of a man to build wealth in a home? Do you know what the number one source of wealth is and perceived to be in the Bible? Children. Children. Children are the primary means by which God establishes wealth. And when I say wealth, I don't want you to think 401k or savings account because it actually seems to be the opposite. When you have children, you have no wealth. But you have children. You have the ability to, to speak to the generations by the raising up of godly seeds. That is wealth. <laughs> And if the church were more focused on raising up personal capital, that is the capital of children and not the capital of dollars, which frankly are susceptible to all kinds of forces like inflation, where do we put, where do we invest 
Property? Okay, that's a little bit better than currency, gold, because I've heard a lot of ads lately, right? Ben Shapiro keeps telling me to buy gold. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't even buy gold. But you know what we can do? As families, we can make our families bigger. This is an interesting application. If she takes his ability away, then the lex talion, which is punishment that fits the crime, since she's a woman, is to cut off her hand, the offending part. Covetousness always leads to a tyranny of one over another as they covet the possessions and spouses of others. And there is only one solution to this kind of tyranny as it relates to its place in our hearts, and it is this. We must repent of the lust that we have for things and people. And the methods of getting them can be illegal or legal. Listen, there are a lot of legal methods in this country where you can take something that does not belong to you. I remember for years driving by a piece of property in Matthews, and it had this massive board that was painted. The town of Matthews stole my farm. You know what they did? They wanted to put a greenway. Oh, a greenway. It was already a greenway. It was a farm. <laughs> it is green. But it wasn't something the whole community could enjoy. So what did they do? They declared it eminent domain. Basically, what they said is, it's not usable. We can now take it without any recompense whatsoever. That is theft. It happens all the time. And we ought not to be party in any of those kinds of things. Now, this is not a political, let's go and storm the capital. This is men create legal means to do immoral things. And we must be wiser than that. We must be shrewd. And we must begin with our hearts. Because once we allow ourselves to covet the possessions and spouses of others, there will be no end to what we can consume. Third point, weights and measures. Do not scheme to keep others from thriving. That is the principle here. He's talking about the Lord. Let's say you have two weights. When you're buying and when you're selling, and you swap those weights out so that when you're buying something, you get a discount. And when you're selling something, you overcharge them. The Lord says this, that is an abomination. You know what abomination means? It's a damnable sin. Now, all sins are damnable. But this is super bad. This is especially hated in the eyes of God. And why do you think that is? <clears throat> Because God has not dealt with us according to our sins. And he wishes for us to respond to men with fairness and, dare I even say, grace and mercy. To be charitable. Remember what the catechism says? What are we to do? We are to, with a right and charitable frame of spirit, toward our neighbor and to all that is his, we need to love 
that they are wealthy. We need to rejoice when they drive up to church in a new car or whatever it may be. Man, that's awesome. Gosh, I wish I had. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it steals joy out of your soul. And so, brothers and sisters, what are we to do? We are to remember, look at verse 17, when you were kept from thriving. This is what Amalek did. Israel, a newly liberated nation out of Egypt, is in the wilderness. They're on the way to the promised land, and then Amalek attacks them. What should Amalek have done? Let's help you. Come on, we'll help you get to the promised land. Now, of course, this is a nation not filled with God-fearing people, but pagan rebels, heathens, the unrighteous. And not only were they attacking you, but they were cutting you off from behind. They were scheming. They were wicked schemers. Is that what you wish to be like? Parents, have you ever done this with your children? Don't be like that person when some sinful activity has happened. This is what the Lord is doing here. Don't be like Amalek. Remember what it was like when you were a new nation being birthed out of the Red Sea, consecrated, and you were going to Sinai, you were going to the Promised Land, and then there were all these nations that hindered you from going. What is the righteous way? And when you find someone along the way, help them. I think of the Good Samaritan. And that parable in which a man did not owe that man anything except that he was a man made in God's image and by God's law owed him that, was righteous in fulfilling the law. Remember when you were kept from thriving? Yesterday we were at a swim meet and there was this kid. Getting out of a six and a half foot pool is very hard when you've just swam a race and you're tired. Some kids, you know, they're struggling, but they're going to get out. This kid was never getting out of the pool. Now, this is what the world does today. This is funny. <laughs> I can't believe you can't get up. You heard about this woman that was viciously attacked for eight minutes on the train? And there were men, men in that train with her while she was being brutally attacked. And they never helped. They filmed it. There's a lot of commandments that were broken there. And I just reached out and grabbed that kid. And he just needed a little bit of help. That's all he needed, and he could go the rest of the way. Now, I'm not boasting. I did wait for a minute to see if he could get out. And his mom said, thank you. He would never have gotten out on his own. Like, yeah, I could tell. There are times where it takes very little to just help. What prevents us from doing that? Well, it is, what does it cost me? Don't be an Ebenezer Scrooge. <coughs> what is this extra lump of coal in the fire going to cost at the end of the month and I have to do my budget? If God is the giver of all good gifts, ought we not to give in such a way that pleases him? Can he not give back? Has he not already given? C. 
See, covetousness, it leads to cruelty. When the wealthy prey upon the weak, when the powerful oppress those who have nothing, this cruelty is an abomination to the Lord. It is like the nations. And covetousness, if it is not dealt with, if it is not killed, it will come out. That internal lust will boil over and it will become an action whereby you destroy, you subvert, you prevent the thriving of another. So what are we to do? Heed those destructive actions off at the pass. Be content with what you have. Give thanks and do it regularly. Children, this is why we give thanks at the table. This is why you should lead prayer in giving thanks. And you should really think about it. Don't do a sing-songy thing. Think about what you have that you would not have that if it were not given you by God. And you know what you would have? Zilch. Not a nothing. The hands that have prepared the food that comes to your table. The work that goes into providing the food that goes to the store. All of these things. Think about the supply chain, the lines. And it all goes back to whom? The one who brings the rain. The one who upholds all things by the power of his word. Keep track of the blessings of God. Journal them. And rejoice in the good fortune of others. Celebrate. Celebrate when others are blessed by God. This is how we heat off covetousness at the past. And maybe, may, by God's grace, we will see ourselves more grateful, contented people. Let us pray.